Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and I'm, I'm listening and learning and you never quit learning and you're seeing what's going on and how uh, some of our people, including yourself, promoting our sport. And I don't have anything. I, I see nothing but an upside. Uh, I think we dwell too too much on what has happened rather than putting our efforts and in, in, in our energy into what we're going to do. And uh, there's a lot of good thoughts out there, and there's a lot of good formats out there. And I think if everybody keeps working, we can bring water skiing back to, you know, to where it was back in the day. Welcome back or welcome to the Water Ski Podcast. My name is Matteo Luzzeri and the goal of this podcast is to promote water skiing through the voices of the people in the sport and through other kind of content that sometime I will provide on my own. However, this week I am beyond stoked to share the first of a two-part interview with the great Jay Bennett. Um, I was at Bennett's it's got to be a little over two weeks ago now, uh, where there was a collegiate water ski tournament for the South Central region and uh, also a little record tournament on uh, Sunday. And so I had a chance to ski the Sunday tournament. And then on Monday morning, I had a long sit down with Jay and I asked him the questions that I've always wanted to ask him. And it's, uh, it's a pretty cool dynamic because I've known Jay for a long time and uh, still being able to pick his brain on things that are important, at least to me, um, was a, a moment that I'll treasure for a long time. Now, this week's part, so first part, it's about Jay's beginnings. So how he got involved into the sport, uh, how, like his first tournaments, how he ended up building Bennett Ski School, and uh, how he managed to organize very successful tournaments over the years. The second part, which will come in two weeks' time, will be about coaching. So an episode strictly about his coaching philosophy, how he approaches coaching with athletes, and what he deems to be successful, what is he coaching. Um, Next week, I'm going to commentate a little bit on the Collegiate Water Ski Nationals, which are occurring this week in California. Uh, Super stoked to see if my Cajuns can uh, bring the title back to Lafayette, Louisiana. But in the meantime, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this uh, conversation with Jay. Please look at the show notes. You'll find some useful links to learn more about uh, Jay and his ski school and some of the cool things that he's involved with. And uh, yeah, enjoy the Collegiate Nationals. I believe there will be a webcast. Follow the scores, tune on your favorite team, and uh, let's uh, reconnect next week. Okay, should we start? Here I'm ready. Okay. Well, Jay, thank you so much for giving me this interview. Lovely to be at your site for the weekend. We just wrapped up a weekend of competition. Um, how was it? How do you think it went? You know, we had a really whirlwind week this week. Uh, coming into the tournament, we were fortunate enough to have uh, Paramount Studios out here doing some filming for a TV episodes. So 
as soon as we got rid of that, we got to roll into a tournament, and you kind of know what it takes to get involved with uh, getting your site ready for a water ski tournament. And it was hosted by uh, the collegiate water ski team, ULM, up in Monroe, yep. and uh, we were just kind of like site host, and uh, we've worked with all those guys a long time, but I think we had a great weekend. We had uh, really good conditions. The performances were a lot of personal best performances, so overall, really good. Yeah, no, I mean, what was it? I think I was I was looking at the results, and there was someone that jumped 168 or 169 in the man category that was 10th. Yeah, we were... <laughs> whole bunch of jumps on a five-foot ramp at 31 miles an hour right, over right. 170 feet and they went as far as 189 feet and carlo from ull put one out there yeah. so it was exciting to watch men's jump but the women did very well also yeah and uh, we had good slalom performances it's kind of fun here at this site because uh we have the ability to run dual events and that means you're running uh, simultaneously slalom on one lake at the same time you've got tricks or jumping going on the other so it's it has a lot of activity, it's an action-packed situation, and never any downtime. So it makes it more fun for yeah. everyone that's involved. Yeah, double the organization efforts, making sure you have judges all over, drivers ready to go, boats ready to go. Yes, it, it changes the complexity of a tournament when you go from one lake to two lakes, and it takes a lot of manpower. You're absolutely right about that. So yeah. we had a great team, and I, I think everybody had a great weekend. Sweet, sweet. And uh, what I... I the way I like to start this interview with you, Jay, is like hearing about your beginnings. Like, so, like to begin with, how did you get involved into water skiing? Well, the actual beginning of water skiing started when I was about six years of age. My parents had a camp on a body of water that's called Foss River. And it's about 25, 30 minutes out of Baton Rouge. And yep. uh, they, were, they enjoyed their weekends. And we had uh, every summer, we'd leave on Friday afternoon, come back home on uh, Sunday night to get ready for the work week. I uh, grew up in a very, very much blue-collar working family. Uh, Dad worked in the industry, so the weekends were their release and our, our pleasure. So I came up in water skiing with some older people that were friends with my mom and dad and actually had a water ski club on False River. Huh. And so they taught me how to ski, and I was fortunate enough to start learning how to ski when I was six years old. And, you know, things were a lot different back then. Right. Uh, the boats, the skis, everything was, is, was quite different. But that's how I got my start with it. What years were they? What What's are we that? talking about? What year was that? Um, I go back to thinking about competition. So my first competition years was 1965. So that's you know, so right around you, that time. Yeah, around 60 probably is when I learned how to ski, uh, dating it. Yeah. What was the uh, the club life like? So you said you had f your parents' friends at a club. Like, was there a lot of members, a lot of skiing going on? It was more of a social club, and they did ski shows back then. Ah. Uh, they loved to do the pyramids and do some barefooting and, you know, do the round the boat. Even back then, uh, some of your basic acts uh, back then were some of some of the things you see with amateur clubs nowadays it's just a difference in a in equipment and, and uh knowledge right but uh it wasn't really a tournament orientated group they had a few people in that group that would venture off to tournaments mm -hmm. and back in the day the tournaments were not every weekend and tournaments were spread out all over so you had to travel to go to tournaments the access to them wasn't what it is today yeah and how did you get started into that like what made you go from 
been involved into this club where people was doing some show skiing, some recreational skiing to actually venture off the tournaments. You know, you could see water skiing at a competitive level on TV quite often back then. Uh So that would spur your interest. And then my neighbor on False River, uh, two or three camps down, he went to a water ski school in Sarasota, Florida, by the name of Joe Cash. Oh, yeah. So he spent three weeks at uh, Joe Cash Ski School and learned about tournament water skiing, learned about barefooting, learned all the different things that were available and out there. And he comes back and he says, Jay, you're not going to believe this. This is what I learned. You know, you got to get involved with this and and you've got some, we got to go to tournaments and et cetera, et cetera. So my mother and dad uh, investigated the American Water Ski Association, found out that was our sanctioning body. Yep. And I remember that part of it like it was yesterday. We did family vacations where you load up the station wagon and you go for two weeks vacation so we went down to Florida, and uh, I got one hour's lessons to where I could get my AWSA ratings at a young age, about 10 years of age, at a ski school, uh, Richard Johnson Ski School in Winter Haven, Florida. Okay. So I got my barefoot rating of one minute. I've got a trick rating of a third class. I think I got a, about a second class rating in slalom. And so now I, was, I had the ratings I needed to be able to, to tournament water ski. And that's yeah. how it kind of started for me. Interesting. So back then you had to get some ratings in order to be able to compete? Yeah, you joined the, you joined the association, and, and then back then there was ratings from third class all the way up through what we call EP ratings. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, you I've know? heard of those. And uh, that was the basis of, of getting qualified for tournaments. But they really didn't have to have a qualification uh, to, to go to the tournaments. That was just a way of being sanctioned that you were in the association and involved with it. Okay, okay. And, wow, long-term involvement since then, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah long-term involvement. Uh, that was a start. My parents did everything they could to, you know, get me around to tournaments. And like I said, back, back then, you traveled quite a long way to be able to go to tournaments, you know. And it was, it's not like it is nowadays where you, have, you can stay within an hour or two of your home in a lot of locations and go to tournaments every weekend. It wasn't like that. It would be six, seven, eight tournaments in the, in the course of a summer. And you travel, you know, right. 10, 12 hours to get to a tournament. So that was a real difference. Yeah. And uh, what was your first tournament like? I'm sure you remember that. I remember the first tournament. Uh, it was in Port Gibson, Mississippi, which was not very far from here. And back then, based on how we classify a good site, it was an excellent site in the, in, in, in the day because it was a private man-made lake. And the wow. majority of the places we skied back then were not private man-made lakes. Right. And I say private man-made lakes in, in the form of a dammed-up quarry, a dammed-up reservoir, and, and a little quarry in Mississippi. So the conditions were really, really good. And Port Gibson, Mississippi wasn't very far from here. Right. And I remember all the judges, the people like Pete Selassie, Jeffrey and Ralph Armstrong, Billy and Nita Reeves, all those people open arms to my... My mother and my dad to have me at the first competition that I've ever been in my life and really showed us the way. And those people mentoring us at a, at a young age in my skiing career is what kept me in skiing, to be very honest with you. Right. So it sounded like you had a good experience, both you and your family, at this first tournament. What about the actual skiing? How did you ski? It's crazy. You, you remember some of the things that you that you do and you you don't remember a lot of the things that you do through competition but I guess because it was a start for me 
uh, I remember there was 15 junior boys. Back then it was junior boys, boys, men. They didn't have the number of divisions they have nowadays. Right. And uh, I remember in slalom that I split split right in the middle. I finished seventh. You oh, know? okay. So I thought that was really good. That's. And I don't remember if I even tricked or if, and definitely, you know, there wasn't any jumping at that age. And uh, oh. my jumping didn't. I didn't start actually competing or actually going over a ramp and jumping until I was about 16 years of age, and that was based on a, a bone disease that I have, osteogenesis imperfectus, which is a tartar stage, very mild stage, but my parents said, no jumping for you, and uh, I watched an awful lot of overalls go out the window because I couldn't ride over the ski jump, and later I was able to start jumping and, and, and really enjoyed it. So, How did you convince them to go over the ramp? I think I finally got of an age uh, and strength level. They decided to let me do it. Uh, the bone thing was always an issue in my parents' mind. And here's another interesting uh, piece of information. J.D. Morgan mm -hmm. uh, actually was tournament skiing back then and was based in Oklahoma. And J.D. was an icon in our sport even at that time, and everyone looked up to him and I have to give JD credit for allowing get, getting my parents to get comfortable with allowing me to go on the water and competing and not to worry about the fractures because uh, he he was really the one that really kind of said, "Hey, this this okay, let him do it." And so, I, you know, owe him a lot for that. Yeah. And I want to hear your opinion on this because I I've interviewed uh, Igor Morozov a couple of weeks ago and he talked about how jumping is a bit of a you know, like you really have to want it, right? Like it can be something that is imposed from parents or from surroundings. Like it has to be something that you decide, okay, now it's the time I really want this. I want to go over. And it sounded like you got to that stage around 16 when you said, mom, please, can I go over the ramp? Was that how it was? Well, that's exactly what happened. You sit there from a young age and you watch everybody, you know, going over the ramp. And it's, it's so fun and so exhilarating. It's such a, uh, a drilling rush. And I felt like I could do it because I sat there and watched it for so many years. Mm -hmm. And uh, there wasn't any real teaching methods other than the basic things. And I had a fairly good balance uh, because of skiing for that length of time. So when I actually went over the ramp for the first time, it, it was fun and it was not a bad experience. I rode off the first jump and kind of went from there. Yeah, and I think that first experience is crucial, isn't it? Like yes. that being able to have a fun time, safe, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I know you provide that here at Bennett Ski School. Um, speaking of which, so you were skiing on a river. How long did you ski on the river for? Well, we actually only body of water I had was False River that I skied on, and we actually started our water ski school on False River. Ah, okay. And with it being a public body of water, we knew eventually if we were going to grow the thing, we would have to, you know, get to private facilities. And then we spent, I spent some time down on, on a bayou, Bayou Plaquemine, a group of guys down there uh, headed up by Lonnie Marshall, decided they want to try to get a water ski club started. Yep. And uh, we went down there and worked with those guys. So we, we had some nice tournaments down there also. And then they, they evolved into uh, being very, very heavily involved with the kneeboarding world and uh -huh. had a lot of kneeboard tournaments down there also. Okay. So, but I basically, until we got uh, the ski school up and running, we were on False River. And then I went into a partnership with a, a gentleman named Johnny Jackson 
at a sports resort over in Tyler, Texas. The 1980 National Water Ski Championships were at this site. It was a remarkable site, uh, had a tremendous number of amenities for back in the day. And so we had a one-year uh, lease or one-year uh, hiatus there in in Tyler, Texas with Johnny. And then we found this place that we're at now and came back and, and purchased it and started our started our ski school here with private lakes in in zachary so so um when you found the place here in zachary what was the condition what was it being used for what was this land utilized for you know i think it's a very unique story there's a always a lot of luck involved but i'll give you the story it's uh mike and nikki lee worked for me at our school in texas both of those guys were from texas Mm-hmm. And another family, C.J. Haynes and his wife, Ray, they were skiing with us on False River. Um, their kids got involved with competition skiing. So the club continued to exist at False River when we left for that year. But when we came, we wanted to try to find a place uh, through talking with different people, we had located this uh, old abandoned catfish farm. A realtor uh-huh. in Baton Rouge owned it. And uh, so here I am at 24 years of age, and I'm going to be the guy that's going to try to negotiate us buying this piece of abandoned catfish farm. And it's a total of 63 acres, and it had about 11 different ponds on the property. Mm-hmm. And so I sat down with the realtor and uh, kind of said, hey, we'd love to buy your old abandoned catfish farm. And he says, well, what do you want to buy? buy this piece of property for us. Well, we want to build water ski lakes on it. Now, you can imagine sitting at the table with a successful realtor, and I'm 24 years old, and he's looking at me like I'm the craziest person (laughs) he's ever talked to. He said, well, what are you going to do after you build the water ski school lakes? I mean, you're going to build the lakes. What are you going to do? And I said, well, we want to start a water ski school on it. Now, he had no idea that I'd already been in the process for about three years, and uh, kind of felt like we had the opportunity to make something work along with the two partners. He said, well, okay, do you have any money? Well, how, you know, how are you going to pay for this? I said, well, we really don't have, don't really don't have very much money. I, hope, you know, I was hoping maybe you would consider owner financing it. He goes, okay, you know, and I can just see I'm getting deeper and deeper in there. He goes, well, what do you have for a down payment? And I said, well, we've, we've got $30,000 that we can put out. We had three families. We all had ten grand that we were going to put down, so we could put down thirty thousand. Well, at this time, the guy's light switch goes off, and he's got it now. He's tapping on his calculator and he's figuring out <laughs> years and interest and stuff like that. And he said, "Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll consider doing that." And so uh, he gave us the terms. And at that point in time, the leverage was over, right. and uh, you know, it was a facility that no matter what we did, we could not have made it any worse. Uh, I've built a lot of lakes since then. I've been a consultant on many, many projects. And you would never allow anybody to go about building lakes like we went about it. Okay. And it was also in a a 100-year floodplain. So there was no value out here. And he figured I pocketed $30,000. And if they fall on their head a month or a year later, I still made the money. And there's nothing out there they can hurt. And that's where that's how it got started, and we made it. Yeah, well, clearly you've made it, you know. So when did you start operating? Um, operating here, we 
we dug, we started digging in 79 mm-hmm. and got the first lake roughed in, and we actually opened spring of 80 here. So spring of 80, you did some ski school yeah. rides. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you remember those? Um, yeah, it's, it was crazy because there was no infrastructure here. Okay. A couple of little mobile trailers. We had a boat launch on the very first lake. The lake wasn't even brown from digging it. It was red. It was so muddy and so dirty. There was no grass anywhere around. Mm-hmm. Um, the students, we'd take, we had four students a week, and we had a tarpaulin off the side of a gas tank by the boat launch, and that's where they had to sit to wait for their ski rides. Right. It was very, very primitive. But the thing was, it was ours, and it was private water. We didn't have to worry about another boat being on the lake, and that's really how we went from that point in time on. And in a very short period of time, we got the you know, other lakes roughed in and got involved with bigger tournaments. We had the South Central Regional Water Ski Championships here the next year in 1981. And then at 26 years of age, I was on the, well, I was EVP of the South Central Region for some, you know, some silly reason. I must have thought I knew something about, you know, organizations and politics. And I found out real fast at 26, I didn't know anything. <laughs> right. But, uh we bid on the national water ski championships for 1984 and received the bid wow and once again the site was not anywhere close to being ready and we didn't have the resources uh to get the site ready so then again i had to go back into the business mode and come up with the finances to to be able to put in the infrastructure and that's a pretty neat story how that went about well that's to me and let me understand if I if I hear the story correctly. You wanted the ski school, and yet to at age twenty four, sit down at the table with a realtor, try to convince him to you know to sell you his catfish farm abandoned Absolutely. for this crazy project. Yeah. And then you manage to get a lake going, and then you have a, a tournament. So that brings in yet again you and now age twenty five or twenty six to figure out a way to make it work. Right. So it looks like skiing wanting to ski and doing tournaments really helped you develop into what you are today yeah you know anyone but if anyone thinks they don't make it in any type of venture any type of uh passion without a support group they're they're you know not thinking correctly i had so many people that were helping us out you know uh drivers judges construction people uh, Mendars, you know, that were excited to see what we were doing. So you can't ever lose sight of how many people were involved. It was not a me, me, me thing. Yeah, I was at the front. I think yeah. I had the passion. I think I had the drive and the work ethics. But you don't do it by yourself. You know, so many people helped us get up and going. And same thing today. You know, we're very successful in what we do, but you don't do it by yourself. you got a tremendous support group that uh, makes you successful. Yeah, yeah. No, what, what I'd like to know is, so in these first years, you're quickly getting exposure. You're organizing tournaments, pretty, like very important tournaments. Um, were you still skiing at the time? It all started because I was an okay skier in a six-state region. I, I did, did very well in competing in, in my area and had a reputation as, as being a good skier. So we were strictly a three-event water ski school, and was strictly for slalom, trick, and jump, yep. and uh, and small numbers. And of course, it's evolved into a totally different business plan now, but that's how it got started. Mm-hmm. And 
but were you, you were still competing at the time? Were you still going to tournaments whilst having ski school and having to organize events? Like, that yeah, sounds like a busy life. Well, I, I think you can relate to that because you've done a good bit of that yourself. And right. What happened for me is that I ended up uh, two reasons. I did compete, and I tried to stay competitive. And, you know, when you go into something like this, you build it hoping to be able to use it. And uh, w- with the physical... Uh, situation and the time and the passion to build a business eventually the my my personal water skiing went you know yeah. went away but uh i I, com- I continued to compete uh was fortunate enough to get on the dock at some of the pro events uh wow. good enough to qualify and get out there and ski and uh can't say i ever got on the podium my coaching is is uh taking me to higher levels thank goodness but it, all those are learning experiences and and uh it was fun to do that, and back then it, it absolutely was not about the money. It was the best skiers going to a tournament and enjoying the passion of the sport, and if someone won some money, they won some money. But uh, eventually I had to let the water ski part of it go on a serious level. I think my last competition was somewhere like in – it was national championships in my age group, uh, yep. uh, 1991, I think, okay. somewhere like that. So it just slowly slipped away. Okay. What about those, like, tell me those experiences of doing some pro tournaments. Because obviously, I'm assuming it was like it is now. You have to reach a certain level, and then you qualify. And then you go, and you, you're you on the dock with people you've been looking up to, seeing on magazines. What was that experience like for you? You know, I think it's a lot like today in the fact that, yes, you had to qualify. You had to be at a certain level. You just didn't sign up and go ski. Um, everybody's very supportive. <clears throat> you were... You're friends with most all of them, yep. uh, you know, better friends and acquaintances. Um, yeah, you. the tournaments were quite something. You know, we always go back to being very, very proud of right here in Louisiana, what we call the Tournament of Champions, which was in Shreveport, Louisiana. And uh, it was created and had such backing. And, of course, Mastercraft was the, the boat company uh, with Rob Shirley. You got can't give Rob Shirley enough credit for what he did for our sport in the in the early startups of uh, pro water skiing. Yep. But we had incredible crowds, and uh, it was slalom, trick, and jump. You know, not always tricks, but most of the time slalom, trick, and jump, all three events. And uh, it was just a very exhilarating time, awful lot of fun. Uh, we had quite a bit of media coverage. Yeah. Uh, really neat a neat time in, in my life to be able to be involved with that and then after I uh, I was fortunate enough to be in in the loop and I also was a judge at that time and I, I remember you know the chief judge at most of those pro tournaments especially tournament champions at that time was a, a gentleman named Tony Bagiano and Tony did an incredible amount for our sport and uh, he asked me and my wife Ann to to be judges so therefore several years we judged and then the coaching part started kicking in and I started having some skiers that were able to get out there and be on that tour. And, uh, so I stepped aside from the judging, you know, right. because didn't want to have any kind of conflict. So it's just how it kind of evolved from the skiing to the judging to, you know, to being involved from a coaching standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious to hear for you as a skier, what was it? Because, you know, I'm, I'm doing some pro tournaments and obviously they are, I would say, the pinnacle of our sport, where you want to be, uh, the most con- like uh, challenging. 
but certainly not with the crowds that you had on the shore when you were doing it. And I just want to hear your experience of getting on the dock, you know, crowds all over the shore and you still have to perform. Yeah, it was incredible because uh, the, the people just really got into it. You know, think about it. We were talking about in the middle of the day in Shreveport, Louisiana, in 90-plus degree weather. Right. And those people are engaged and loving every minute of it. And uh, the process was straight up, slalom, trick, and jump. The announcing was very professional. And mo most of the time we had some type of TV. Yep. Uh, so I think just being in that in that arena, just the excitement to be able to be qualified and be out there and be in that arena because your passion for the sport. I think the passion for the sport is still the same. I, I go to a pro tournament now and I see so many skiers engaged, so many people trying to help each other, so many people traveling from all over the world to ski at a pro event. So that part hadn't changed. Uh-huh. And, and you see, that's, that's one of the things I really want to pick your brain on because You've competed in early pro tournaments. You've mentored athletes that you started mentoring athletes afterwards that went to these tournaments, and then you organized yourself some pro tournaments in recent years, right? And certainly you've been a mentor for me when I decided to <laughs> do this crazy thing and do it myself. Um, but I want to hear your opinion on potentially what's working right now and what is missing. Well, that's, that's a great question. Let me go, I'm going to back up a little bit for a little bit more history. So 1984 National Water Ski Championships were here, and along with the National Water Ski Championships at that point in time would be your U.S. Open. Right. So all your pros came in for the weekend, and you had a group of water skiers that just finished skiing in the National Water Ski Championships, so you had a captive audience as well as the people that would come in from the advertising that you did locally. Yeah. So... It was really neat for the amateur skiers to be able to be able to see the pro skiers at the U.S. Open. So in 1984, that was our first one. Would be the first pro event that we did here. And so then, you know, I I said I'll never do another national water ski championship again in my life. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever even young and energetic I ever done anything any harder or any more expensive. Right. And. Uh, I turned around and I bid on it in 1989, and, and, we, and we did it again, you know. And once again, the same format. And right. then, just to give you uh, some background, uh, electronics have evolved unbelievably in the TV world. You know, you see these guys carry little cameras and things such as that, and there's so many different ways to promote it. Well, we had an 18-wheeler truck here in the, in the back uh, at, at the base of Lake One, yep. and it was the TV truck. And it was a full 18-wheeler truck with every type of electronics that I could possibly imagine looking in there, seeing screens everywhere. And they literally would run. They wanted in course for slalom, and they put scaffolding, and they ran hard lines, big, thick hard lines all over this facility. It was a massive undertaking to set up TV for the U.S. Open. Wow. But that was really neat to see that. And that was already in 84 or 89? Yeah, 84, I believe, is, is, is when they did it. And I'm not too sure. I think we still had the TV here in 89. Because in my, you know, younger generation that came afterwards view, those were the golden years of water skiing, right? You had hot summer nights on Monday nights on ESPN. Yeah. Um, skiers were making good money, yeah. right? Um, what happened afterwards? You know, it's always a, a good question. Um, I was involved 
with the pro event when wakeboarding came into play in 1995. Yep. And actually, wakeboarding was fortunate enough to get exposure of coming in and piggybacking on on our events. Mm-hmm. So wakeboarding was added. And you've got to understand the industry's uh, motivation also. They have, they have to make a living. So this was a new era at that point in time, right in there where it kicked in, and the industry started diversifying quite a bit at that point in time. <clears throat> so we were not slalom trick and jump anymore and uh what was always been neat in my opinion i I was a barefooter i love barefooting i barefooted at a a pretty good level and the barefoot competition always held its own it always had its own own venue yeah and uh and then it's show skiing man i think that's still one of the most exciting things in the world to watch some water ski shows nowadays so i just loved every every part of our sport but uh, as things evolved into the sponsorship stuff, I think I really think that our sponsorship dollars got uh, uh, what's the proper word got spread out too too much, mm-hmm. and uh, it was too many different venues that they had to support, and I think that was the start of our our uh, demise of coming down with you know in in three event water skiing. Yeah. So basically wakeboarding coming in and really joining the same venues the same tournaments that water skiing had like the the sponsorship money spread thin and eventually wakeboarding popularity peaked it definitely jumps it it definitely was something new it was something the spectators like to see it jump started them big time yeah without a question i remember it like it was yesterday yeah yeah and so the industry also changed right so both manufacturers started to make boats for wakeboarding specifically because at first it was just water ski boats that were adapted absolutely uh ski companies started to create wakeboard divisions and creating boards and so the skiing gig started to decline do you remember those years well i I remember very well you know um at one point in time uh three event water skiing especially slalom and jump was so strong we had two tours Okay. And uh, we even had two tours in the same city. We had one in Dallas on the, on the same weekend. We had one in Dallas and one in Fort Worth. Wow. And some of the skiers were trying to ski both events. And uh, Sherry Sloan, who's a young lady that uh, I mentored for a long, long time, and she was part of our staff here, was fortunate enough at that time to dominate women's jump. Mm-hmm. And we worked out a schedule where she was able to ski in both of those tournaments. And it was just some of it was luck. Some of it was uh, pre-planning. But yep. she came out for one podium, put the skis on, and went out and got back on the other podium. So that weekend, she won both pro events. <laughs> Isn't it crazy? So that was pretty exciting, pretty cool deal. You know, something that probably never happened again. Some of the skiers, I won't name any names, tried to do both of them. And you know slalom, how complex it is. Yep. And you know how you get in these runoffs and these ties. One particular skier that I was thinking about, he was at one of them. He finished skiing. He got in his car, ran over to ski in this one. Well, he was in a tie to make it into the finals like this one. Right. And he couldn't get back to run off the tie because he was skiing in the other one. So that didn't work out so well for him. (laughs) Yeah. But with with Sherry that weekend, it worked out really good. And I think it goes to show, I mean, well, one, how – crazy you know um attention there was to to the sport because 
for someone to decide to organize two pro tournaments in the same week. And I'm assuming these tours had different sponsors. Two so different you, organizations, you know. two, two different sets of sponsors, but it just shows you how strong it was at that yeah. time. Yeah. And I think, you know, like you might have heard that there are some efforts in Europe right now to create a, a European tour with like separate sponsorships and separate point system. And I think there, it sounds to me like, yeah, whilst two events in the same weekend is exciting, I think organizing efforts to make sure that the top skiers can ski all events possibly is a way to go so that, you know. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and I, I'm listening and learning and you never quit learning and you're seeing what's going on and how uh, some of our people, including yourself, promoting our sport. And I don't have anything, I, I see nothing but an upside. Uh, I think we dwell too too much on what has happened rather than putting our efforts and in, in, in our energy into what we're going to do. And uh, there's a lot of good thoughts out there, and there's a lot of good formats out there. And I think if everybody keeps working, we can bring water skiing back to, you know, to where it was back in the day. Yeah, or somewhere different, as you said. Like yeah. maybe stop looking in the, in the past and just trying to understand where the sport needs Absolutely. to go now because yeah. we're 25, 30 years later. The industry yeah. has changed. The way in which we ski has changed, uh, you know. So uh, that, that advice is taken very well, obviously. Hey, just taking a little break. I hope you're enjoying the interview so far. Just a quick reminder about uh, helping out with the promotion of the podcast, which in my mind is equal to promoting the sport of water skiing. Uh, so if you want to help out, if you're listening to this um, podcast on Apple Podcast, make sure to subscribe if you're not subscribed. Just give a little five-star review or whatever you would review you want to give. And uh, a little even write a review. Uh, all these things Apple considers to push the podcast up on the charts, which is really my main drive uh, and the way in which I think we can promote uh, water skiing through the podcast channels. Also, if you feel like donating, if you want to help out with uh, the various costs of this, you can go on thewaterskipodcast.com slash support and you can find ways in which you can support over there. Uh, sorry for the interruption. Back to the interview with Jay. Um, you did organize though a number of tournaments in recent time. To me, I remember obviously LA Ski Jam. So, what was? How did that tournament even started? That's um, you know, we always wanted to do pro events here, yeah. and so I'm gonna back up after we did U.S. Open in '84 and '89. Uh, then the next pro event that we did was the Carrington Cup, and that was for Jeff Carrington, who unfortunately had a very bad accident doing stunt work and so this was a uh, fundraiser for Jeff yeah so that was still in 1997 that was still three events so that was our our next pro event that we did out here so the way LA Night Jam came about is uh on cloud mastercraft um, myself and other people involved we're still looking at these formats. What can we do with a format that will draw the crowd? So it was a, a group effort. I can't take credit for, for being the, the brain thrust behind it, but Stuart Morrison had started some night jump in London, England, mm -hmm. and we saw it was being very successful. So we thought about LA Night Jam being 
kind of like to the general public for advertising like a dinner and a movie. You finish everything you're doing on a Saturday or a Sunday, and then you're looking for some kind of entertainment, whether you're going to go to the movies, get a, get a bite to eat, you're going to go top golf, whatever you're going to do. And so he said, that's the format that's going to work for us. We can draw crowds in here. We're going to do entertainment. Right. So we do the preliminaries, and we did a little test market. We had the uh, INT National Water Ski Championships here, and so we did a little test market. We brought in the lights, and we brought in about – well, here on staff, I had about three pro jumpers at that time that could participate. Right. And then Freddy Krueger came in, and uh, I think we brought in Scott Ellis – and we did a pro tournament for the entertainment of the INT audience, which at that time was about 1,000 people. Back to the same thing of having a, a captive audience in 84 and 89 for the U.S. Open, we had all the INT people there who yeah. loved water skiing. Jumping was not part of the INT uh, competition, so it was even more exciting for them to see this. So then on the flip side of that, I brought in potential sponsors. I made an afternoon of uh, entertainment for potential sponsors, and I invited people that I knew that owned companies. And so Freddie and those guys got a, a, an appearance fee where they got paid you know, a little bit of money, and so that's where LA Night Jam started. It was incredibly uh, – it was received tremendously well by the INT people, and so then we just started building into a format. Yep. So the next year is our first big year, and uh, you know, advertising dollars are always limited very limited and i think what makes uh la night jam special and that we're capable of drawing crowds is that we have boots on the ground doing what i call guerrilla marketing six months out right. we're doing we have boats at restaurants handing out flyers we've got uh, the little town of zachary really backs this event we've got street signs yard signs everywhere just really down to to uh you know, getting the word out by word of mouth and, and hitting the streets. And then we were fortunate enough to partner with a, a, a good friend of mine and also the general manager of iHeart. And so they came in a couple of years later, and that really gave us a, a big boost on, on local advertising. Yep. So the reason the format, back to the format, which I, is a critical part to me, we do preliminaries during the day, even two days of preliminaries. Our last big night jam we had 44 entries, and this was jump only. Yep. And it was 170 feet for the women to qualify to get into the finals and 220 feet for a man to get into the finals. Now, that's some really serious jumping. Which I think it, uh, it speaks a lot about, well, the level of jumpers, obviously the, the sheer numbers yeah. that you had here competing to make it, and the quality of your site. Because, I mean, 220 to make a cut of what, top eight? Yeah, that's it, that's it, crazy. It, it's crazy, and you know it's done today. But that was the first time you saw those kind of numbers, and you know you got to get credit to Mastercraft. They were the boat sponsor. They put put the power in the boat to get those performances. So it's a combination of everything: a nice sight, a good ski jump, incredible athletes, and a boat that had the power it needs to to get those skiers to those distances. So we get done with the preliminaries, and we get ready for LA Night Jam. We open the gates at about five o'clock, and there's entertainment on site. You got iHeart taking care of having a national band in here. Uh, we've got music playing. You've got all your food vendors, and of course, in Louisiana, it's about food and drinks. Yep, no doubt about it. You know, and so we do a two and a half hour show. It's a tournament to us, but it's a show 
And why is it? It's a show. We're doing things. We're doing show ski acts. We got barefooters. We got freestyle jumpers. We're doing things that are just entertaining to the audience. You know, yeah. you're here. You're here in Louisiana, LSU, Louisiana State University. We're talking about the Tigers, okay? Right. We got a, a jumper doing a clown jump out in a tiger uniform. You know, <laughs> right. Right. Silly things like pulling the pulling people over the ramp on a water weaning, but it's entertaining <laughs> to, to, to the, the crowd the public. So there was always something happening. I mean, little fireworks, and there's never a minute that something's not on the water, but the finale is the women's and men's jump. And okay. when, when this crowd that's not really a water ski crowd at night sees that person fly through the air, the distances, they are ecstatic. They're just screaming. And we get the same effect from slalom skiing because we also do slalom in every one of those events but because of limited prize money, it had been exhibition. Yep. But they're seeing the spray at night. They're seeing the speed of the skier. We did different formats. Like we put a man against a woman. We put the best man skier in Louisiana against the best lady skier in Louisiana, which was my daughter at that time. Uh, we did different formats. We brought in pros, and they went head-to-head with each other. So we know what the effect of slalom at night is also, and it was right. always part of our show. Same thing with trick skiing. So basically, the concept is keeping it short and keeping action on the water and making it a festival-type atmosphere. And that's yeah. why I think we did well. Yeah, and I think one of the, at least to me, who, as you know, I've been, I've been delving with doing this for a while, it's the balance of creating a show that is entertainment, entertaining for people, being worried about the organization of all of that, so food vendors, sponsors being happy, crowd parking, like all of these things, and yet provide conditions for the skiers to compete at the highest level, right? Because I think lately we've had the two extremes, right? So it's either, uh, yes, we can draw a crowd here. It's this body of public water, which could actually be dangerous, or even if it's not, it's not going to be performances that the skiers are going to be ecstatic about, or private man-made lake, uh, great pro tournament, but for a crowd of the competitors that are there watching. How do you manage? I mean, that's, that's quite impressive. You had both, the best of both worlds. Well, I, I think because we did the marketing with boots on the ground, we can get the general public out here that aren't water skiers. Yeah. I think that's it. And what you just brought up is, is what we're all all of us that have a love for the sport are trying to figure out how we blend the two together. Yeah. You know, back when I skied, most everything was on public water. Yeah. When we were on False River and we had our ski school and we had the milk jugs out there as our slalom course. Yeah. It was unbelievable amount of people that would try to do the slalom course. So as we evolved in our sport and we needed better facilities, we pulled ourselves off of the public water and we pulled ourselves away from the general public's eye al- along with not having the TV and the, the things that we had that m- brought water skiing to the general public. So our largest, our biggest uh, challenge yep. is to get it back into the public's eye. And that's the challenge. And no one has the silver bullet. Uh, when we go to an event where they have the prize money and the water conditions are very sketchy these athletes are so good at what they do nowadays and have so much at risk with an injury 
we understand that there's always going to be a risk involved, if we, even if we own a perfect private man-made lake, because of the speed and the physical uh, force that you put on your body. Yep. So bringing the two together is our, our question, and that's one of the things I really like about some of the formats that everyone's throwing on the table and some of the formats are already working. I think we're headed in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, and I think the one that is going, I think it's interesting how the whole U.S. Open aspect, it's almost coming back because the format that is working nowadays is what we call the pro-am format, right? So you have amateur skiing and pro skiing in the same event. So you have a little bit of that, of course the numbers are different, but a little bit of that U.S. Nationals folks that stay and watch the U.S. Open, but at the same time you have pro skiing and you try to figure out a way to sell that package to draw non-skier attention in, right? And I think um, the challenge is, as you alluded to, is like knowing your lo local area, know what works for the area that, um, that you're organizing your event in and try to capitalize on that. I totally agree. And anytime we have the opportunity to uh, tie our sport into another major event, that's a, that's a good chance for us to have great exposure also. Yeah, yeah. So um, what are, so I think one of the things I like to, to touch on is that this is way more than a ski school, right? Like you're selling boats, you're servicing boats, you have a pro shop, you're drawing attention from, you know, summer camps of people that are learning how to ski to professional skiers or wanting to be professional skiers that come in here and train in the hopes of becoming a pro skier. Like, this is a pretty big operation. Well, you know, I, I believe it's 43 years now that we've had a school. And I think with any business, you always have to know, change, kind of shift gears, change directions, ha have a, a business plan of where you're going to go and where you're going to get your numbers. Um, we are very large. The ski school side of, of the business is uh, what we established first. Yep. And then, as you well know, we're a master crab boat dealer. Yep. And uh, my daughter and son-in-law do a really good job of running that segment of our business. And we have the pro shop. So the pro shop started off really in like a 10 by 10 building with some gloves and handles and as an accessory to the people that came to the ski school. And also realized the ski school started off like four students a week. Right. You know, right. and we, we're pretty solid six months out of the year at 26 a week now. So I don't know, you know, that there's any bigger numbers than that. But the biggest thing is our diversity. Um, we cater to a lot of different uh, water sports. Yeah. Um, we're still very much the bread and butter of three-event water skiing, but at a lot of different levels. Uh, right. The collegiate world has always been something that I've been involved with, and I've always tried to be very uh, supportive of collegiate water skiing. And so that even starts back in the 70s, when, late 70s, when we got the program started up at ULM, which back then was NLU, is now ULM. And, and my staff would come from, my summer staff would come from those programs. Right. And so um, now the collegiate world, we get them from all over the world. We get a lot of students from Japan. Yep. And then we roll into March, and our deal is just almost by the month, I can tell you where I'm going to have people coming from. But truly international, too. Uh, after March, we get the collegiate skiing teams in here, and then we start having our international students from everywhere, you know, from Belarus, from 
Italy, from uh, a lot of people come from Sweden. We've had a tremendous amount of people from Canada. We really have a great Canadian clientele. So that goes into like the middle to the end of March. All the people from up in the northern states, Wisconsin, Michigan, they want to get an early start. They come in. We've got a, uh, a really neat program that we've promoted now for three years for the month of April for the specialists. It may be slalom once in the morning and then slalom in the afternoon and have a situation where it's relaxation, staying in the cottages on the lakes, having some nice dinners, lakeside, yep. things like that. So, And then we get into our summer programs with the junior development programs. We do a ton of little junior development skiers. Yep. And then our, our bread and butter that we've revolved into is getting new people on the water, the recreational business, the local recreational kids that never skied or wakeboarded or barefooted, anything like that before, coming in, and they're in, their, in our summer camp programs for a week at a time. So what that does for us, it brings them into a new world that they haven't been involved with, and their parents see that this is a family sport. Yep. They see that I can have involvement with the entire family if I have a boat and I buy the equipment and I get out on the water. So a lot of our boat sales come from, you know, we talk about their wakeboard boats, but not in my world. I mean, they are wakeboard world, wakeboard boats, but in our world, there are water sports boats yep. because the family buys it, and they're going to ski behind it, they're going to surf behind it, they're going to wakeboard behind it, even going to barefoot behind it. And yep. the way Mastercraft has their boats set up now with all the uh, – different ballast systems and the plates and things like that, they can make these adjustments to where it satisfies the family's needs, and it's got so much room in it. So bringing the recreational market into our world of teaching them to water ski, and mom and dad come and have the opportunity to get in the boat on Friday, and then it just revolves into a situation where they get involved and say, hey, we can do this as a family. And there's not a lot of things out there that you can do as a family. Very you well can said. Go to the baseball park and mom and dad can sit in the bleachers. Right, right. Okay. But boating is a whole different deal. Yeah. Everybody can get out there and be involved. Yeah. No, it's so, very true. It's very true. So that's what we've done. We've had to do that. I don't think you ever quit growing. I think with any type of business, it just happens to be a water ski school facility that you see and you've been involved with me for a long time to see the growth. You're always trying to grow. When you quit trying to make something grow then i think you die yeah so. yeah that's kind of like the same lesson my dad gave me when we started to do this pro tournament he said we're going to make small steps forward but we're always going to make small steps forwards there's not a year where we're not going to do anything new otherwise that's when you when you start declining and obviously be because of your passion for the sport and of course you have a business within this industry i know you're very passionate about you know promoting water skiing and I know that several times we talked about the, your belief that collegiate skiing has a huge uh, role in the promotion of water skiing. Would you, care to, would you care to elaborate on that? You know, the, the collegiate water skiing is a perfect example of what I think we need to do at a different level, and I'll talk about that a little bit, to grow our sport. Yeah. Because the big question to all of us in the industry or have a passion with the sport how are we going to grow our sport? Right. And a lot of people have a lot of good ideas out there. Well, collegiate skiing is the largest growing segment in water skiing. Right. And think about it for a minute. Why, why is it being so successful? 
you know, you you went to ULL and you were fortunate enough to be on a scholarship and y'all had an incredible team over there and you win national championships, but that's really not the heart and soul of collegiate water skiing. Yep. The heart and soul of collegiate water skiing are all the teams that are involved with it at an intramural level. Mm-hmm. That they sit on campus with the boat and they put their sign out and they say, do you want to join the water ski team? And here's a t-shirt for $10. And they create a club and they, they, they create a fraternity and then they start going to tournaments. And they go to the tournaments to compete, but they're going to, to the tournaments for the total package of having all the involvement the uh, camaraderie with their other team members, and that's a team sport. So here's my, my thing. Marcus Brown was, we were doing an interview a year ago, maybe six months ago, and this was a question he brought up, and I, I can't get away from this. Now, do I have the, all the pieces of puzzle put together in my mind? No. I know how we can do it if we can get the sponsorship. It always goes back to money. It always goes back to sponsorship. But the team concept at the elementary level, the team concept at the middle school level is what's going to grow our sport. Because in the ski school, when I bring the recreational skiers in, the first-time guys and girls, they're coming out of the elementary and middle school. So look at what happens. We monitor this with the ski school. Unbelievable. We talk. My wife is talking with parents every single day, and they're trying to schedule their week of ski school in with all the other things that they're involved with. And when you listen to what you hear from those parents, it's the other camps and the other things that create camaraderie and the team sports because the, the person wants to be involved with their friends. So how do we do that in water skiing? Here's the big deal. Okay, Jay, great idea. So how, how do you do it? Well, it starts with our association. For me, it starts with the American Water Ski Association, USA Water Ski, with inside that structure. And easier said than done, because it always comes down to being an issue with money. Right. If we could do this, if we could do this, the number of boat sales that are out there that are water sports related are tremendous. Well outside of our companies that we deal with, Malibu, Mastercraft, Correctcraft, the guys that pull the, that have the tournament water ski boats. Yeah. So we create a team concept and we have two problems. We've got to have the money. We get it, do we get it from the state? Do we get it from the local tax economy? Do we get it from sponsorship? What if we get all the boat companies involved? We've got Chaparral, we've got Sea Ray, we've got every one of these companies are selling thousands of boats involved with helping out a little bit right. for this particular program putting money back into the potential of us creating team concept in the elementary and middle schools. I'm pretty sure, and I don't have the facts, she'd be a great one to talk to about this, but I know Jennifer Leachman LaPointe put a lot of effort out in high school sports back a few years ago trying to create it in Florida, and mm-hmm. she probably would have some good insight on what the, what the stepping stones are for that. But here we go. The second part of that deal is where are we going to get the sites? Mm-hmm. And, and this is where I really think. Let's say right here in Zachary, and we're talking about like September, October, times that we're slow, even putting lights in here like they have down in Okahela, you could do night programs. There's a couple of places that actually do night programs for colleges, believe it or not. One's right there at South uh, Texas State University at one of the local lakes there where you actually get a credit 
to be able to go take water ski lessons you know wow. so that's a neat that's a neat concept because it creates money back to university so what we're looking for is number one we got to have the site number two we got to have the sponsorship and those are my thoughts of our association has to go out and create this package and implement this marketing concept to the masses not yep. just to our industry our industry is too small to fund everything second part where are we going to get the water Okahili is a perfect example of what could happen, at least one facility like that in every state. Right. Because it's county-funded, it's county-maintained, and it's done where the general public can use it like. If you have a boat that's in their rule requirement, and you go and you buy your permit, and you follow their rules, you can ski on one of those five lakes Anytime you want, it's accessible to the general water skier as yeah. long as you meet the rules and regulations. Well, here in Baton Rouge is a perfect example. We have a, a recreational parks commission that has lakes on the facilities everywhere. Right. Okay. So then that's where you would have to develop the sites for these places that wouldn't have a ski school in their backyard to be able to make the program happen. So it's a two part deal. And would it take a lot of work? Unbelievable. Take a lot of money? Quite a bit. But would, it, would that concept work because it works in college? Absolutely. Yep. And that would be a great way for us to grow our sport. That's, that's fascinating. And I did see that model. Like I'd never been to Okihili before, strangely enough. And then and I was involved with HO like at the Nationals. So I got to see the park. And when they told me how it, it works, which is exactly how you explained, I was blown away. Like you, if you have your permit and you, you can launch the boat, you wait in line, you get to ski on amazing water um i'm i'm shocked and i and i do believe that as you said the the true collegiate scheme not the the this collegiate competitive collegiate scheme that i was involved with which i'm super grateful for but the true numbers stand in the club right going into campus with a sign i've heard this story so many times like have you ever water skied uh yes one time when i was 11 okay join us right and then they introduce people into the sport as a matter of fact this weekend you had a collegiate skiing tournament here and i met people that were here just because their friends joined the, cl the ski club a month ago Correct. right so yeah. the the potential for attraction of new numbers and new skiers is is incredible yeah that model hadn't changed i mean yeah. we did the same thing in the early 80s at lsu yeah we didn't have any money from lsu we in a four-year period, built a team that made it to the Nationals. The women ended up being third. They lived in a dormitory. I had enough time to be able to take them on the water and, and, and train them. But we did that. We had the boat on the site. We had the signs. We created a club. We'd have as many as 100 people join the club, and we'd give them one ski day and a barbecue and a T-shirt. Yep. You know, And then that money would fund those kids to be able to go to the competitions. And they've, and they've had the same success and maybe even more on the wakeboarding side of the curve now that this wakeboarding – is at most all the colleges too. Yep. But that model hadn't changed. It works. And it still works. Yep. I I interviewed Amanda Stevens about a month ago, who's the uh, <coughs> the president of the Clemson Ski Club. And the way they do it is exactly like you explained. They have uh, a ski boat and a wakeboard boat. Members can join. They can use the boat. Luckily, at Clemson, the, the water is next to campus, so it's easy and accessible. And they use their money to travel to tournaments. And I was looking at the rankings a few days ago, Clemson is now fourth in the nation. Neat. 
So that, that really cool. model is working, yeah. you know, so they were able to attract, obviously, great skiers. Clemson University is a great academic institution. So that model still works to this day, you know. Um, Jay, uh, I think this kind of concludes the first part of our interview. Uh, we're going to get our listeners hooked on next week when we'll delve a little bit more into coaching. Thank Sounds you. good. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you.